As I was participating with you this morning in the Lord's Supper, and we were singing that last song, I'm in awe of you, I wondered in my, in my mind, how many of us, be honest, this week or over the last two weeks, at some moment in your living room went, yes, or got off your couch and went, way to go, and were in awe of one of our Canadian Olympic athletes who won a medal. Tell the truth. Yes, exactly. Whether it be Andre de Grasse or last night, I don't even know the lady's name. Her last name is Mitchell. She run, won one of those races on that crazy cycling thing. I think it's called the Bellatron with the incredible steep angle. And uh, we were all sitting there as a family and we all went, yes, come on. We were cheering. We were in awe of what she was accomplishing. Oh, may God help us to make sure that we give more credit and make sure that we are more in awe of what God has done for us. Amen? Let us not be lazy in giving credit to God and being in awe of Him. Well, what a great morning we've had together, reminding one another of some of the great truths about our God, both through song and then right now through participating in the Lord's Supper together. Truths like Christ being the King of heaven. Therefore, who can stand against us? Or when we have the God of angel armies by our side, whom should we fear? And if you came in this morning feeling down and perhaps a little discouraged because you know that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're not quite hitting the mark in terms of loving him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind. I trust you were uplifted as we were reminded of how deep the Father's love is for you and for me. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch like me and like you his treasure. Wow. How great is our God. So as we turn to his word to close off our, sermon, our service this morning, I want to continue that momentum. And I want to keep drawing our attention to the greatness and the glory of God by highlighting another truth about his character that I trust will strengthen each of us this morning as we've gathered here. And here is the truth. He's got our back. He's got our back. Our God is the ultimate warrior. If you have your Bible, I'd ask you to turn to 2 Kings where we will be reading chapter 3 as we continue in our journey, looking at the lives of Elijah and Elisha, daring dudes in dark days. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. Joram, some of your translations may say Jehoram. It's the same name, same person. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Now Misha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of a 100,000 lambs and the wool of a 100,000 rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am 
as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What? exclaimed the king of Israel. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here, through whom we may inquire of the Lord? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, Why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. But now, bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha and said, this is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water. For this is what the Lord says, you will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. I love this verse. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, there it was, water, flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them, so every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red, like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder, Moab. When the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns, and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Ker Harseth was left with its stones in place. But men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. Wow. You think the Bible's boring? That is an action-packed chapter. And you know what? Knowing that someone's got you back when you find yourself in a stressful situation is so reassuring, is it not? I can guarantee you that our faithful uh, servants who help in our tech department up there this morning, they were grateful that Mike Burkholder was behind their back when no words are coming up on the slide during that first song. It's so reassuring when you know you have someone behind your back. I remember as I worked through my ordination last year and the dreaded day came when I had to stand before other seasoned pastors right in front here and be examined, as the Christian word says, in reality, grilled. 
by seasoned pastors on my understanding of biblical doctrine. It was so reassuring to know that Pastor Rick was the moderator that day because he had told me beforehand, don't worry, KK, I got your back. That phrase, I've got your back, it's a familiar phrase. Do you know where it came from? It actually arose from Second World War as building and other defensive positions were cleared by squads. The first soldier to enter would be reliant on others to protect him from the rear as he concentrated on what lay ahead of them. It's a phrase that relays the message that when we get in trouble, there's someone we can always count on to defend us and to stand by our side no matter what. And that person is the Lord our God. As is declared in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Isn't that good news? So there are three aspects of God, our ultimate warrior, that I see on display in this passage that we've just read through that we all need in order to be victorious. And the first aspect I see of God that we need, knowing he has our back, is his grace. His grace his undeserved favor towards his people. He is the ultimate warrior because he gives us what we don't deserve. Joram, as we read, was the second son of King Ahab to rule over Israel. You'll remember after his brother Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his rooftop room and eventually died as a result of his injuries, that Joram succeeded him as king. That was because Ahaziah had no son. And similar to his brother, we read in verse 2 of the passage we looked at today, that he also, King Joram, also did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But there's this statement, but not as his father and mother had done. It caused me to think this week, we need to be careful that we don't justify our sinful decisions by comparing them to the ones made by others. We need to be careful of that. Well, I'm not as bad, have you seen what they've done? Be careful that we don't justify our sinful decisions and actions by comparing them to the ones made by others. Rather, we need to evaluate our decisions and our actions according to God's expectations of us. Although Joram is credited with at least getting rid of the stone image of Baal that his father had made and placed in the temple he built to worship Baal, the scripture says that he still did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And if you read further in chapter 10, verse 26 and 27, you will see evidence that Joram simply put this image that he got rid of, he put it in storage. Wow, he was ahead of the times. You see how many self-storage units there are around town these days? Joram didn't get rid of it. He simply put it in storage rather than destroy it as God had commanded his people to do with any graven image of false gods. Because later on we see in chapter 10 that this image that his father had made, this stone image of Baal, reappears. You see, Joram continued the religious policies of his parents and his predecessor, Jeroboam. Not only did he continue them, did you see what it said about how he continued them in verse 3? He clung, he clung to the sins of his predecessor, Jeroboam, and did not turn away from them. King Joram continued to reject Yahweh as the one true God of Israel. And as the king, he continued to facilitate the unfaithfulness of God's people in their worship of the false god, Baal. 
His actions from a human perspective would seem to have disqualified him as a candidate for God's grace, for God's undeserved favor towards him. And it would seem that the prophet Elisha's response to Joram in verse 13, after the three kings approached him, remember as we were reading, in order to ask him to inquire of the Lord on their behalf regarding the crisis they find themselves in, it seems Elisha felt the same way about the king. He didn't deserve undeserved favor. He didn't deserve grace. Note Elisha's tone when he had just Joram. Why do you want to involve me? Sarcastically, he said, go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother, Jezebel. After all, Joram, as king over God's people, you are the one who has continued to promote the worship of Baal and clung to the sins of Jeroboam. Would it not make sense then that you seek the prophets of your own gods? In your time of trouble? Elisha, in other words, was saying, if your gods were working so well for you when there was no trouble, why, no pun intended, bail on them now when you find yourself in a crisis? And you know, we chuckle. But if we're not careful, we can act just like Joram. I don't mean in the sense that we have necessarily outright rejected God and we are now bowing to false gods. But I know in my life, and I don't know about in your life as a walk, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, have you ever noticed that when things are going really well, our sense of daily needing to depend on God can fade, can subside. And we begin to focus our time, our energy, and our resources on other things. But then as soon as trouble comes, we desperately come running back to God. And I wondered this week as I was preparing this sermon, has God ever said to me, Calvin, why do you want to involve me now? Go to the things you have found your joy, your sense of significance and security in. You see, Joram and the people of God did not deserve to receive God's grace. They were unfaithful. But as we read the passage together, we see God, the faithful warrior, the covenant-keeping warrior, extended his grace to the king and to his people. He showed them undeserved favor. And based on who we are, we too did not deserve to receive the favor of God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But praise God for Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, the amazing grace of God, our warrior. Praise God. The ultimate warrior has our back even though we don't deserve it. Amen? The second aspect of the character of God that I want us to look at this morning is his mercy. His mercy. He is the ultimate warrior because he often withholds giving us what we deserve. Grace is when he gives us undeserved favor. Mercy is when he withholds giving us what we do deserve. And as we read, while Joram's father was king over Israel, he required that Moab, one of Israel's long-standing enemies, were to pay an annual tribute or kind of a tax to Israel. And because the Moabites were known for raising sheep, it made sense that the tribute that they owed be paid in lambs and wool. 
which the Moabites, by the way, grudgingly paid for many years. And in verse 4, we read, Misha, the king of Moab, had to pay the king of Israel at that time was Joram, a tribute of 100,000 lambs and 100,000, the wool of 100,000 rams. That's a whole bunch of mutton and wool. 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 sheep. Maybe they were the ancient ancestors of New Zealanders. I don't know, right? But that's a lot of sheep that they had to pay. And if you had to pay that amount, you would probably be frustrated as well. But as soon as King Ahab died, who instituted this payment to Israel, the king of Moab saw this as a perfect opportunity to rebel and to free his people from the political dominion of Israel and the economic burden that they were facing having to pay this tribute. And unlike his brother, King Ahaziah, who had done nothing about Moab's rebellion, Joram, as we read today, immediately sought to squash the rebellion and bring Moab back under his control, and in so doing, make sure and maintain Moab's sizable tribute to the northern kingdom. And so we read in verses 6 and 7 that Joram, listen closely, on his own initiative. Joram, on his own initiative, set out from Samaria, mobilized all of Israel to tackle this rebellion head on. His plan involved fighting Moab from the south, which required him and his army to have to march through the southern kingdom of Judah. And so in verse 7, as we read, he sends an invite to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, to join him as an ally in his battle against Moab's rebellion. To which we read, Jehoshaphat agrees and pledges his support, and the two of them head out towards the desert of Edom which at that time, by the way, was under the control of Judah's authority, and that is why the scriptures read that there were three kings. So on their way, they enlisted the king of Edom and his army to also join the coalition. And then in verse 9, it tells us, this is why you know it was a bunch of men leading this trip. After a roundabout march of seven days, doesn't sound like they were really going far. The army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. For seven days, the three kings and their armies marched down the southwestern coast of the Dead Sea, around the southern end and into the desert of Edom, where they ran out of water for themselves and for the animals with them. I can tell you, from my experience having traveled through desert terrain, both in Africa and then in some of our trips in parts of the southwest states that we've gone to, running out of water in the desert is not a good thing and can become very quickly a dangerous situation. You know what? As I reflected on this passage, I thought, wow, how we are so like Joram. When we rely on our own initiative and move ahead with our own plans, choosing to not seek God's will, we can often find ourselves in a mess. Listen to the description and the warning of doing things without seeking God's will. In 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14, referring to another king, Rehoboam, the scripture says, he did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. Oh, may we be people who have a heart that is set on seeking the Lord. Are there areas in our lives where we are neglecting to seek God's will and simply going it alone? 
And how does Joram respond when they find themselves in this crisis with no water in the desert? Verse 10, he blames God. He blames God for the precarious situation they find themselves in. Are you kidding me? They are in the desert in this precarious situation because of the king's own initiative. And yet he blames God. How often are we like that though? We are so quick to blame others rather than owning our own mistakes. I remember as a kid, it's our nature. Growing up in Africa, we didn't have baseball, we played cricket. Cricket ball is really hard. And if you drove by our house during cricket season, you'd often see pieces of cardboard where panes of glass should be in the front of our house. Because sooner or later, a ball is gonna go through the window. And you know exactly what happens, right? Dad comes running out, there's two brothers standing there and says, what happened? And I know I hit the ball through the window and what's my immediate reaction? Kendall! It's how we are. We don't want to own our mistakes. We're so quick to blame others. It's a good indicator of a rebellious heart. So he blames God. And then later in verse 13, we see him continuing to blame God when Elisha questions him as to, why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. And Joram answers really quickly, no! Why? Because he believed the Lord was the one to blame for the situation they found themselves in. Therefore, from his perspective, it was up to Yahweh to get them out of their trouble. From a human perspective, it would not be uncommon for us to look at this situation and say something like this. And as I say this, I'm sure in your own mind you can hear your voice saying this about a situation that you were maybe a part of at one time. Hey, they got themselves into this mess. They will have to figure their way out of it. Are you not grateful that God does not deal with us from a human perspective? And that in his mercy, he withholds giving us what we deserve. Joram and the people of Israel were disloyal to God. They had placed their faith in false gods and without consulting the Lord, moved forward with a plan against the the Moabite rebellion. And now they found themselves in a crisis, and on top of it, their leader is blaming God for it. And what does God, the ultimate warrior, do? He gives them what they deserve. No, he doesn't. He extends his mercy towards them. He withholds the consequences they deserved for their actions. What God's people then and today deserve is death. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'm so thankful for the words of Psalm 86.15, but you, O Lord, are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. And Ephesians 2.4 summarizes it all up so perfectly, and because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead, even when we were in our Edom, in our transgressions. Never forget, it is by grace that we have been saved. Praise God. The ultimate warrior has our back and often withholds giving us what we deserve. 
You know, we regularly thank God for his grace, which is the right thing to do. But at the same time, we need to regularly also thank him for his mercy. His grace and his mercy. For his willingness to withhold giving us what we deserve. And before we go on to the third point, let's remember we have been created in his image and in his likeness in order to represent his character on earth. So how merciful of a person are you towards others? Is our tendency to just give people what they deserve? The next time you have that temptation to give someone what they deserve, remember God's mercy towards you. He has withheld so much of what we deserve. He is the ultimate warrior, and he has our back because he gives us what we don't deserve, and he's merciful by withholding things that we do deserve. The final aspect of God that I just want to highlight this morning from this passage is his provision. His provision. He is the ultimate warrior because he provides everything we need. Philippians 4 verse 19 says, God will supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. As the events of Joram's encounter that we read together in chapter 3 with the Moabite rebellion unfolded, it became clear as we read through the passage, abundantly clear that God had his people's back. And there was three specific things he provided for them to ensure their victory. The first one is found in verse 14. He provides them with a mediator. He provides them with a mediator in the person of Jehoshaphat. You see, Jehoshaphat was a righteous king who the scriptures record in 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 43 that in everything he followed the ways of his father Asa and did not stray from them. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So you have two kings, one who's doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, and then you have Jehoshaphat, who is described as a king of Judah, who does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. His only major fault, like his father, was his failure to close down the high places. This is why Elisha treats the evil king of Israel graciously when they come to inquire of him in a way that he does not deserve. And the reason for his treatment towards Joram is because of his connection with the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat. Did you hear what Elisha says? If, it, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, Joram, the king of Judah, I would pay no attention to you. Elisha's regard for Joram did not stem from Elisha's relationship with him, but rather through Jehoshaphat as a mediator. In other words, King Joram, the king who did evil in the eyes of the Lord, was benefiting because of Jehoshaphat. I want to read you a section of a commentary out of a Bible that I have called the Transformation Bible. Listen to what it says. The pattern of grace and mercy seen here is a small picture of a larger reality appearing in the New Testament. The Lord continues to treat his covenant people, you and I, according to his steadfast love in ways that we do not deserve. The reality that, the reality that undergirds this type of gracious, merciful treatment also remains the same as it was in chapter 3 of 2 Kings. It is rooted in the consideration of another, a mediator, 
But in the New Testament, the mediator is not another flawed king. It is the Lord himself, Jesus Christ. The hope of each Christian, the grounds for our assurance achieved by virtue of our union with Christ is that the Heavenly Father treats his people with grace, mercy, and compassion because of our unbreakable connection to his Son. Were it not that the Father has regard for Jesus, just as Elisha had regard for Jehoshaphat, were it not that the Father has regard for Jesus, the King of Kings, he would neither look at us nor see us. The connection alone to Jesus Christ is what produces peace, joy, and assurance in the Christian life. Amen? He provided a mediator for them. The second thing I see he provided is his word. After an officer of the king of Israel explains to the kings that were asking, is there any prophet of the Lord around? And this officer of of the king of Israel says, there is Elisha. And he describes Elisha as one who washed the hands of Elijah. And right away, Jehoshaphat recognized that Elisha is a true prophet. Therefore, he says in verse 12, the word of the Lord is with him. Amazing how the Lord had directed Elisha there to be ready for this mission. I mean, it's unlikely he was there traveling with the army as a soldier, and yet he was there because God is gracious, God is merciful, and he provides. And so in verse 16 to 19, we read the word of the Lord that he gave the kings. This is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water. How good that must have sounded in the crisis they were in, in the desert with no water. He says, I will fill this valley with pools of water. For this is what the Lord says, you will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water. And you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. Wow, how assuring that must have felt for his people to hear the word of the Lord that was full of assurances for them when they were in a situation that was dangerous. God gave him graciously and mercifully his word. And finally, the third thing I see he provides for them is his power. His grace, a mediator, his word, and now his power. And I love how verse 20 puts it. The next morning about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was. There it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. God kept his word as he always does. And through his divine power caused from rains in Edom, don't forget that's a desert region, Water began to flow down into the valley, filling the land, displaying both his power and his love for his people. What a morning that must have been to wake up and see. And yet on the other side, the Moabites, having heard that the kings were coming to fight them, had assembled themselves along the border, both young and old, whoever could take up arms. And when they woke up that same morning, and saw the sun shining on the water God had provided for his people, the scriptures say to them it looked red like blood. Why? Well, the combination of not expecting water in that region and having not heard any wind or rain as God's word had said they wouldn't, and the red sandstone terrain of that region would have turned the water a red color. 
And those things gave the Moabites reasons to believe what they saw was blood. That's what they said. That's blood. They were convinced the coalition of kings had fought amongst themselves and slaughtered each other. So rather than advancing with weapons drawn and ready for battle, they ran to plunder the dead soldiers' armor and weaponry. And look what it says in verse 24. And when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. Defenseless, the Moabites fled before the coalition and empowered by the ultimate warrior, the God of Israel, invaded Moab, slaughtered the people, destroyed many towns, and did to the fields, springs, and trees what God had instructed. The coalition army led by Israel, empowered by God, the one true God, had defeated the Moabites, and the Moabites had been delivered into the hands according to the word of the Lord that was told them through Elisha in verse 18. Praise God. The ultimate warrior has our back, and he provides everything that we need. He has our back. The question I want us to close with today does he have our complete trust? Oh, he has our back. He has provided his grace. He has provided us with his mercy. He has given us his provision through a mediator, his word, and empowered us through the Holy Spirit with his power. He has our back. Does he have our complete trust? Why do I close with that question? Because I don't know if you noticed as we read the passage this chapter of Scripture ends in kind of a bizarre way. Listen to what the word of the Lord said to his people, the kings, through Elisha. You will overthrow, in verse 19, every fortified city and every major town. That's what the word of the Lord said. Now if you go over to the end of the chapter, verse 25, they destroyed the towns, and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. But only Ker-Harseth was left with its stones in place. Ker-Harseth is the capital city of Moab, where King Misha is. And then it goes on to say, but men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it. So they were going forth, trusting in the word of the Lord that was given to them. Verse 26, when the king of Moab saw the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom. But they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. What is going on here? Well, you see, defeat in battle was regarded by pagan Near Eastern warriors as a sign that their gods were angry with them. So in a desperate hope of intervention by his idol god, the king of Moab, sacrifices his eldest son, the heir to his throne on the top of the city wall in plain view of everyone both inside and outside the city to see in an attempt to appease his god and to incite his men to fiercer battle and to frighten the enemy. Was he successful? What does it say? 
at the end of verse 27. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their land. In spite of all that God had done to prove that he had their back, they withdrew without bringing all of Moab back into subjection. The account of this battle provides further proof of the sovereignty of God who has his people's back, extending grace, extending mercy, and providing them with everything they need. But even with so much proof, Israel continued to spurn the Lord and foolishly choose to put their trust in pagan deities. And sadly, isn't that how it is with us so often? God has our back. He's extended his grace to us. He's given us his mercy. He withholds giving us what we deserve, things that we might not even be aware that we deserve. And he provides for us everything that we need. And yet, we still struggle to completely trust him. I pray that through his word this morning, you have been encouraged. God has your back. He is the ultimate warrior. And by God's grace, let us grow in completely trusting him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are the ultimate warrior. You have our back. That's such good news as we sang in the one song this morning. Though trouble lingers still, it's okay. God has our back. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your provision. As we have celebrated this morning, the ultimate provision through the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, so that we can be forgiven of our sins and be indwelt with the gift of your Holy Spirit so that we can know without a shadow of a doubt that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. Thank you for having our back. Oh God, forgive us when we do not completely trust you. Help us to be a people who have a heart that is set on seeking you, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.